In May of 2020, thousands of protesters took to the streets over the murder of George Floyd. Among those protesters were Rouge Rahman and Collinford Mattis, two lawyers in their 30s who were arrested for throwing a Molotov cocktail through the broken window of an unoccupied police car, and charged with seven counts, including arson and civil disorder, which collectively carry mandatory minimum sentences of 45 years. In October of this year, Ms. Rahman and Mr. Mattis struck a deal with federal prosecutors and pled guilty in federal court to one count apiece of possession of a destructive device. They face up to 10 years in prison for this charge. Today, on Indubitably, we'll be exploring mandatory minimum sentences and exactly how they play into cases like this in our criminal justice system. Controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. Well, that story brings up a lot of questions that surround uh, mandatory minimum sentencing, like how much power we should give to judges and what kinds of crimes, if any, should mandatory minimums be applied to? And does this policy uphold or detract from the principles of our criminal justice system? Mm. And to help us with those questions today, we have a guest, Katrina Burlett, and uh, who is the Campaign Strategy Manager for Parole Illinois. And we were talking about it a little bit before the episode, so I think it might be better Katrina, if you tell our listeners about it so I don't mess it up. I don't think you would. I would trust you with this, but I will share it. It is a group of people. It's really a coalition of currently incarcerated people and advocates and their their loved ones on the outside in the free world working together to bring the voices of incarcerated people into policy discussions. This really grew out of a debate team that I was originally coaching in a maximum security facility here in Illinois. The, the gentleman on the team loved the opportunity to speak to people who could make meaningful decisions about things that really impacted their lives. So we've continued doing that even in the aftermath of the debate team. That's really cool. You know, there's a couple of other, um, Kelly and I were involved in debate, as our listeners probably know, and then that's actually where we met Katrina originally. And there's a few different debate programs across the country, you know, hers hers, um, having been one of them, that have done some really excellent work. Uh, Another one that I I think if people are interested, they might want to look into is the Bard Prison Initiative, where uh, a debate team of prisoners under that initiative actually beat uh, Harvard University's debate team. In a, in a competition, which was pretty cool and, and was in the headlines for a while. So I think it's a really, it's a really neat activity to allow for people to learn and, and just get the opportunity to self-advocate, you know, maybe individuals who don't traditionally have that chance. So why don't we move into the conversation about mandatory minimum sentencing? And I think we should probably start with a definition for the listeners who might not be super familiar with the term. And a mandatory minimum sentence is essentially a sentence which the court must give to a person convicted of a particular crime. And what's important to note here is this is regardless of context. So it takes any kind of discretion away from the judge and it turns it into sort of a blanket policy. So with the mandatory minimums not really being highly favored by the public, and uh, there's significant statistical evidence of an ineffective reduction of crime rates, perhaps that could be debatable as well, but it's also not cost-effective. I think it's important to consider why it keeps being upheld 
by these bodies time after time. Katrina, in your work, um, I know that you're mostly focused around parole. Do you also, you know, deal with this issue? Totally. I've encountered so many people in my work inside prisons that have mostly been affected by the three strikes laws. So when you are convicted of three separate felonies, you're on your third felony, regardless of what happens, um, you're considered a, a habitual, habitually stuck in that cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, habitual it, offender. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I just hate that word. Mm, uh, fair enough. <laughs> so what would um, you, well, let's, let's, let's talk about that for a second. So I think the the legal term is habitual offender. What mm-hmm. would you prefer? What's the issue with the, with the term offender? I think it essentializes a person down to a single violation of a crime. It's really harmful and, and easy to inflict harm on someone when the only thing that you know about their personality, the defining thing about them is that they have violated the law. Mm. I think that's kind of interesting because that's almost sort of a microcosm of this entire issue, right? Is that we're going to take away any of the context to a particular action. We're going to take away any of the extenuating circumstances. And this person is just the thing that they did period. And then because of that, they are going to get this penalty period. It might be interesting, kind of the parallels between the terminology and then the policy. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, I think a, a little bit of history on, on to answer your question, Kelly, which is why why does it continue to be upheld? This is why it's interesting to me that we have the legislative branch stepping in and sort of superseding the judicial branch in this, because it means that politics now come into play in our criminal justice system. And I think that these mandatory minimum sentences. Um, trace back predominantly to the 1980s, where we started taking this "quote unquote" tough on crime approach, and it, it's it's interesting to me because even though the public, and then therefore politicians, wanted to be tough on crime, the percentage of adults that were incarcerated actually was increasing all the way up until 2008. So the imposition of these mandatory sentences, you know, obviously there's a ton of factors. This is multifaceted. You can't point to just one thing, but certainly. After these things were implemented, crime did not go down. Crime didn't go away, but actually the number of people incarcerated increased again until 2008. And then since 2008, it's slowly been dropping. And what's also interesting to me is that violent crime rates have followed a similar curve to the incarceration rates over that same period of time. Meaning that like the violent crime rate increased as the incarceration rate increased? Right, exactly. So you, you can't really say that, well, we're, we're throwing these people in jail. So therefore, we're preventing crime because the more people they threw in jail, the more crimes were still being committed. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to say which is the cause, which is a result. Is there any correlation whatsoever? But certainly, this tough on crime approach did not reduce crime. Dang. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Distinct. <laughs> so um, I, I think as far as mandatory minimums in particular, just to give a sense of scale, in 2020, 25% of all federal cases carried a mandatory minimum sentence. And of that 25%, 75% of those were drug-related. So we talk about tough on crime since the 1980s, but also what started in 1971, I think it was, but it got serious in the 1980s, was the war on drugs. One, one of our fake wars that we wage 
as a country. Um, but in, in 1980 to 1984, the federal annual budget of the FBI's drug enforcement units went from $8 million to $95 million. So we got pretty serious about this stuff at the same period of time that we got serious about being, quote, tough on crime. And um, these, this idea of mandatory minimum sentences plays in with both of those things. Yeah, our, our country really needs to figure out how to deal with drugs. <laughs> well, yeah, recently, recently, and I think we'll we'll talk about drugs specifically a little bit later, but recently we've we've actually been seeing that reducing sentencing seems to be helping or just legalizing it completely. Hey. <laughs> so the question with mandatory minimums is really about how much power and discretion we're giving to the judges and uh, really how much power we're giving to the prosecutors who are dealing with any individual case. Prior to the implementation of mandatory minimum sentences, this was something that judges and prosecutors had a lot more discretion on. They could take all of the factors in a case into consideration and make judgments based off of their experience and the other cases they'd seen and the way that they see their their colleagues also sentencing people and say, okay, we should be more lenient because of this. We should be harsher because of this and, and choose um, something that they felt fit the crime in, in each individual case. It was really an, an acknowledgement that no two cases are the same. No two individuals are the same. We should give everyone individual attention and consideration. When we brought in mandatory minimums, we were saying, hey, we're, we're recognizing some discrimination in sentencing, maybe some preference for people in certain categories, some lenience where we shouldn't be seeing some. And we don't trust judges and prosecutors to necessarily make just and standardized decisions. They've all been making these in their own these decisions in their own realms, and we should standardize what people are doing to make sure that crimes are always met with the same punishment. So I think this actually brings us to the first question that Kelly had mentioned, which is how much power should the judges have? So Katrina, you're mentioning there's judges that are too lenient in certain cases, and maybe that leniency is based on just their own biases. Maybe these leniency is based on the personality characteristics or or racial components is obviously kind of the elephant in the room when it comes to this sort of criminal justice um, issue. So, you know, is it a bad thing that we are standardizing a system and removing the ability of judges to kind of make decisions that might be informed by inherent biases or just explicit biases that they might hold? Yes and no. I think the desire to standardize equal punishment for the same crimes or the same harm that's committed is is a good one. It's an impulse we should probably follow. We should seek to extend the same response to every crime. No, in that it does remove discretion to be more lenient um, as their minimums. It means they can still be sentenced to more time. So they're they're not kept from being more harsh if they need to be. But being able to take into account factors like a person's age or the relationship to a person who may be identified as the victim in that case or 
there's just a hundred things that need to be considered. Probably some of them would be mitigating factors <laughs> in mm-hmm. some cases that mm-hmm. might justify less than what's been decided as mandatory by our legislatures. But there, there are some legitimate reasons why people would be motivated to uphold mandatory minimums as a practice, because even if there are data points that tell us that maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be, there are still certain things motivating their implementation and their um, continual use in, in some states. And I think what we're talking about when we're talking about removing some discretion from the judge is also checking on judge bias to an extent that maybe other methods don't currently have. So one of the things that could be taken into consideration in addition to, you know, mitigating factors like we already talked about is that judges may, without a mandatory minimum system, react more harshly to uh, people of color who are being charged in their courts rather than white defendants. So we can see that there probably are instances where there is under sentencing for um, people who commit crimes who are in certain demographics that the judges may prefer um, unconscious biases or overt biases. But there's also when you have a mandatory minimum in place, when you have similar crimes committed by different people, then you eliminate the fact that some of those people would previously be over sentenced rather than um, right now they would all be receiving the same sort of minimum sentence. So there's there's two ways that that kind of slices, I guess, is that you check for under sentencing of, of people who may be given preferential treatment. And you also check for over-sentencing of people who wouldn't get that preferential treatment because everybody's getting the same sort of review, is my understanding of one of the reasons people are motivated to keep this in effect. Yeah, my understanding is, um, okay, wait, pause for a second. I'm getting a call from prison. Okay, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You can take it. Okay, I'm, I'll answer it, but I'll just ask him to call uh, back. This is a free sure. call from... No, I take it. Howard. To accept this free call, press okay. one. To refuse this free call, Akira, you may start the conversation now. Hello. Hi. <laughs> so to pause this episode really quickly, uh, this is Josh from the future, by the way, editing the show. Obviously here, while we were recording, Katrina received a call from one of her friends, an inmate that she had worked with in the Illinois Department of Corrections. We decided to take the opportunity to ask him some of his thoughts on this particular topic, and he was happy to share his opinions and have them included in the episode. To give you a little bit of background, his name is Howard Keller. He's 20 years into a 55-year sentence, and while he's serving that time, he's pursuing a master's degree in Christian ministry. He also has a daughter who he's proud to report is pursuing her own degree in higher education as well. That is all in addition to being a self-proclaimed cat lover, which made Kelly and myself very happy. So, we'll continue with his conversation with Katrina here, as well as dispersing some of the opinions he shared with us throughout the rest of the episode. How are you doing? Good. I am a little busy at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm chatting with some friends about mandatory minimum sentences. Mm-hmm. Would you, do you have anything you want to say about mandatory minimum sentences? Uh. And we need to get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if you can give uh, the number one reason why, what's the thing you like least about mandatory minimums? Because they arbitrary, first and foremost, right? So they just pull a number out of the hat and say that should be the minimum on the crime. 
You know what I mean? And it's not really based on any logical reason. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, they don't they don't they don't they don't come from a place of like found these logic, right? It's just, you know, twenty years mandatory medical first degree murder. Mm-hmm. Three years mandatory minimum for a firearm. Like why? And they making a decision, they're saying this is how long a person should be alienated from society, how long he should be placed in harm's way inside of a prison. How long his family should go without him, from him or her, which can have like deleterious effect across the board, right, with regard to like business a breadwinner, a single, a single family structure, you know, they or teenage children who are like going through transition in their lives, mm-hmm. and so you're just taking a person out of a, out of a family life, right, and just smacking a, a, a an arbitrary number as to like how long this person should be gone. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it doesn't detect anything, right? So no person has ever not committed a crime because they said, wait a minute, the minimum, this mandatory minimum is going to be 10 years. Let me not do that. I hear that. Um, right. I should, I, yeah, I should get back to my friends. Do you have a phone roll tomorrow? Uh, yeah, I'm going to call you tomorrow. Okay. Call you in the morning. Okay, perfect. All right. Take care. Okay. Love Bye. you. Bye. That's power. That's actually the the idea of the arbitrary nature of mandatory minimum sentences is really interesting because the whole justification that we've been giving is that, well, we don't want the judge to allow for their bias to step in and pass down arbitrary sentences. But what about biases of the legislatures? Right? Who who's to say that a Congress or or a state government that sets what the mandatory minimum should be? is not allowing for their own biases to like, like why? Yes, it's standard. It applies to everybody, but that doesn't make it correct. That doesn't make it the right number of years for whatever particular crime it is. I think you're going to have to chicken and egg the scenario of where these biases are coming from then, because the bias of the legislature is coming from bias of the voters who were set up to be in biased districts through gerrymandering. Like at what point do we find the root of the bias and actually get it out? And is mandatory minimums just an effect of biases or is it a cause of perpetuating biases or where do we even begin when we're addressing inequity in this country? Mm. And I think it even goes beyond biases straight to being arbitrary. This, this, currency of penalty being time that we've set up time being removed and isolated from society is super bizarre in world history like rather than you know just use you stole something we're going to cut off your hand because you used your hands to commit the crime or whatever like like people had much more creative uh ideas for retribution in the past um but like this is this is just a crapshoot. We're just like, hey, how about how about stealing three hundred dollars six months? Like mm-hmm. we we don't have any sort of way to equate harm to time. But is it any less or more of a crapshoot than leaving it up to judge discretion in every case? Is this is this the 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 balancing point of justice? Is mandatory minimums or no? when it comes to arbitrary application of the law. Hmm. Well, as, as far as the mandatory minimums and, and how we equate time, I think that, you know, I've got a background in campaigning and, you know, I can tell you 
a couple of things, like a, a kind of a logical chain here that, that might lead to this, which is A, if you are a candidate and you don't have the support of the public safety lobby on your side, you're going to have a hard time getting elected. So as a candidate, if you're not supported by police, fire, et cetera, um, your, your chances of getting elected go way down. And so typically, if you come out, and again, this kind of ties back to the whole tough on crime mentality that we talked about earlier, typically, if you support things that the police department would support, you're going to get their vote um, and make you therefore more electable. So I think you know that's super problematic for me because you know, to answer your question, Katrina, there's a, there's a lot of politicians out there who just say, well, what, whatever number of years it happens to be now, if I just come out and add five to it, it's going to make me look like I'm tough on crime. And then it's going to make my constituents feel safer if they elect me. So treating these numbers or this amount of time as a sort of campaign platform leads to some pretty nutty punishments being assigned to particular crimes. And actually, the question of how police officers feel about this is really interesting and honestly something I hadn't thought about before this. I've never spoken with a police officer about how they feel about mandatory minimums, but given how much power it puts into the hands of prosecutors and how often they use the threat of mandatory minimums to just get people to plead to lesser things than, you know, whatever whatever crime the police actually caught them doing. Um, I would be really interested to hear on the whole how police actually feel about the use of mandatory minimums. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm not trying to homogenize every officer in every department across the country, but in general, longer sentences equals tough on crime equals people feeling safer equals votes. And I think that's the system that that is problematic if that's going to be determining the fate of people's lives. Yeah, we should just get rid of lobbying. <laughs> we should just get rid of interest groups altogether. And um, mm. I, I think that there's also a certain demographic of voters who are very drawn to like law and order candidates. You know, to give a to give an example of all this, we can look at the types of crimes that these laws are applied to. Particularly, we mentioned seventy five percent of them are drug crimes. And there's definitely some inherent racism in the application of it. So, for example, in 1986, the U.S. Congress passed laws that created a 100 to 1 sentencing disparity for the trafficking or possession of crack when compared to penalties for the trafficking of powder cocaine. Um, Crack being much more likely to be used in minority communities, powdered cocaine being much more likely to be used in white communities. So. If you were convicted in federal court of possession of five grams of crack cocaine, you would receive a minimum mandatory sentence of five years. On the other hand, you would need to possess 500 grams of powder cocaine to get the same sentence. So in 2010, this, the Fair Sentencing Act kind of recognized this and cut the sentencing disparity down, but it's still a 20 to 1 disparity between crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine. I would recommend watching the documentary. I think it's called 13th um, that specifically touches on the disparity in sentencing guidelines, depending on the variety of cocaine that is being um, possessed. Um, Because there's a pretty good motivation for why certain demographics are more um, penalized 
for certain offenses that date back to um, the only place in the country that slavery is still legal, which is the prison system. So that's a whole can of worms too. (laughs) I don't know if we want to get into that, but I'd at least recommend that to people who are interested to see kind of maybe some of the fears that the government preyed upon during the height of the war on drugs in the 1980s that made people accept this as a reasonable reaction, even though it's obviously incredibly inequitable. Mm-hmm. So I guess that that leaves us at the end of this section with that the question still there is, are standardized punishments any less arbitrary than punishments where we give judges the power to look at extenuating circumstances and have some degree of flexibility in the sentences that they pass on for these crimes? They're not any less arbitrary. It's just like their arbitrary nature is now codified. It is like enforced arbitrary sentencing. Mm-hmm. Mm. The the facade of standardization. Mm. It's whitewashed, literally. So we have power to the judge and flexibility on the judge's behalf. You know, some problems and some benefits for that. We have power given to the legislature in terms of setting these some advantages and disadvantages of that. And then another thing we've referenced, another party here that we've talked about a bit is just the prosecutors and the kind of power that this gives to the prosecutors through things like plea bargains um, specifically and and trying to secure cooperation from individuals charged with these crimes. Yeah, to me, this is the biggest way in which mandatory minimums actually affect our criminal legal system as a whole. They're instrumental in prosecutors being able to pressure individuals into taking a plea bargain. So when a prosecutor approaches a defendant and they say, we have XYZ charge for you, the mandatory minimum for this is 20 years. If you agree to plead guilty I will take off this charge. I will knock this down a level and you can, you will only face three years. Would you like to go to trial? Mm. (laughs) And that has very, very few people are willing to bargain with 17 years of their life. The, and and as a result, roughly 95% of people who end up with criminal charges end up pleading guilty because these, the two options are so, they're so different. They're so disparate because of these mandatory minimums. I can definitely see that where someone goes in and, you know, maybe the judge can give them three years and they, they understand that there's a lot of extenuating circumstances around this. If there's a person who feels as though their life has coerced them into, you know, selling marijuana, for example, and they know that, if they go to trial, there's a good chance that they can explain to the judge the circumstances surrounding their financial needs, and maybe the judge will have some leniency on them. Are they willing to go to trial? You know, possibly, but if they know that the, there's no way, if they are guilty, it's period 25 years. Oh man, that's a lot riskier. I could definitely see people making decisions they wouldn't make otherwise. I think that you see a lot of people making decisions they wouldn't make otherwise when they actually haven't done anything illegal because Mm. there are people who know that the judicial system, the court system is not equitable 
especially when jury trials are involved. And even if there is, they haven't done whatever they're being accused of, but there's a compelling case nonetheless. They quote unquote fit the description. Or they also, yeah, there's any number of reasons why people would still think that they did it regardless. I, I don't think I would be willing to gamble either on um, the assurances that a jury would actually come to the right conclusion. Um, so I can see why people would accept a plea bargain to avoid a longer sentence. Um, because even if they're innocent, like that's just so much time that, that is, um, at stake for the rest of their lives. This is like a really twisted game show where, you know, you either have zero years or 30 years, or you can just take the guaranteed three and walk. Yep. I don't want to watch that game show. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be in the game show, especially. No. Um, But yeah, there's people in this game show right now, as we're talking or as you're listening to this episode, there's people that are playing this game right now and trying to having to make that decision. Yeah. Yes. And if it's okay, I'm going to share a story about a friend, his situation fits really well for both describing accountability theory and talking about, you know, why it's so advantageous to take the plea even when you're innocent. (laughs) So uh, this man was also on the debate team at Stateville Correctional Center. His name is Smiley. He's completely brilliant. And he, at age 18, was convicted of a double murder. His involvement in the crime was that he knew his friend had an illegal firearm. That's it. Mm. The The firearm was used by his friend to go and kill two people. Um, in the midst of his friend's trial, the fact that he had talked with Smiley about the gun previously came up. Smiley got dragged into stuff um, and ended up with charges of his own he was really confused by um because he was like i didn't know the crime was happening i wasn't there i didn't have a weapon like i am obviously not guilty um so the prosecutor was like well if you plead guilty you're going to serve um five and a half years and smiley was like absolutely not (laughs) i i did not do anything and he went to trial And under Illinois' accountability law, uh, because he could have stopped the crime if he had reported his friend's illegal firearm, um, he was found guilty of that crime, which was two murders. And the mandatory minimum for two murders is life without the possibility of parole. So I met Smiley a little over 30 years into his prison sentence. Where if he had pled guilty, he would have been home in uh, 1996. He wouldn't have even been 25 years old. And And um, now he's 50, almost 50. Yes. Wow. He was able to share his story at the public debate that we had in, in inviting a whole bunch of legislators in. And one of the legislators heard his story and was literally weeping in the audience and was like, you should not be in prison. And it turns out that his family lives in her district. And so she was like, we're getting you out of here. 
And so she went on like a personal crusade to free this man and had the state's attorney look back at his case. And the state's attorney was like, I have no idea why this man's in prison. And they released him under the agreement that he wouldn't talk about it publicly. But I didn't agree not to talk about it. Publicly, so. <laughs> this is what makes that gamble so scary. He, he, he did gamble. He did. He, he did say like, hey, I'm not guilty. So fuck your five years. <laughs> I'm not going to jail. And then he ends up there for 40 years. Oh, my God. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense for why somebody would say, you know what, just I'll I'll do the five, whether I, I should be doing the five or not. And on the flip side of this, Howard talked to us about another possible scenario in which individuals who, even if they knew that they were guilty, would go to court and fight charges that they might otherwise be willing to accept the consequences of for fear of these extreme sentences. The mandatory minimum for first-degree murder with a firearm is 45 years. That's the mandatory minimum for that. So when I come into the courtroom, I might want to say, man, I made a mistake. I was uh, drunk or I was angry. I might want to explain. I might would have otherwise explained my actions. But when you tell me I'm facing a mandatory minimum of 45 years, I'm not even thinking about explanation. My first thing come out of my mouth now is I'm not guilty. Not guilty. It's not that I'm saying I didn't do anything wrong. It's saying that I am not about to sit here and peacefully let you lock me up for a mandatory 45 years. Mm. Who would do that? What person would actually do that? And so now I'm, 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 I'm about to make this criminal justice system hundreds of thousands of dollars to prove something that could have really been resolved had you not had that such an extreme mandatory minimum sentence hanging over my head. You, you, you really like making people fight the system. Some person may willingly go in there and say, you know what, I made a mistake on the And then if the question was asked, okay, well, what were the factors that we need to do? If a person comes to a conclusion and say, you know what, after considering all of these factors, then we realize, man, that the appropriate penalty for this particular individual is only six years as opposed to a mandatory 20 years. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I don't know. So, looking at this, this system, the criminal justice system, I think it'd be useful to sort of move into the second half of this conversation, which is what are the theoretical purposes of that criminal justice system and how do mandatory minimum sentences either uphold or reject those purposes. And I think that most people can agree generally that our criminal justice system has a couple of different goals. One would be deterrence. One would be rehabilitation. And I think that there could be an argument made that retribution could be a legitimate goal of a criminal justice system as well. Sure. So deterrence, there's a calculus that people employ when they determine whether or not to make a decision and the the consequences of that decision, especially in a society that is policed the way it is, people know that a risk of engaging in certain behavior may be arrest and then charges, conviction, going to prison, things like that. So when it comes to mandatory minimums, they're used in this calculus of deterring people from committing crimes, whether or not they effectively do so. People believe that they do because most people say, 
well, I know that I don't want to go to jail for X amount of years, so I won't commit a crime. And then they extrapolate that type of thought calculus to everyone must also feel the same way because obviously no one wants to be in prison for a long time, so they shouldn't commit crimes if they don't want to. So I think that's why mandatory minimums still have so much support is because people do ardently believe that they actually deter people from committing crime when there isn't really any evidence that that's the case, but they just, it feels like it should be the case. So that's why it's supported in, in certain aspects. And, and that's what we were talking about earlier, right? When you have somebody running for office and they want to show that they're tough on crime, they're going to make things safer. It's just really easy to say, if crime is up and we increase punishments, crime will go down. That's a very simplistic, but logical sounding way of approaching things. Yeah, I think that the issue of deterrence here is that it does not address the motivation behind certain activities. Like we're all reasonably comfortable people who have a lot of privilege. So it makes sense that we probably don't think it's worth it to engage in criminal behavior. Other people don't have the same advantages. And that might be one of the ways in which they are willing to take a risk in order to try to better their lives in a way that most people don't actually have to consider. I.e. possession sale of marijuana, which is obviously a $91 billion industry that they just wanted a piece of so they can pay rent. Among other things, sure. (laughs) But there are also people who think that regardless of your circumstances, crime is still a choice. Um, Many people come out of adverse situations and don't do criminal activity. (laughs) So there is plenty of reason to say that it's still a decision that people make, even if they are, you know, socially uh, or economically or politically disadvantaged, they still have a choice to engage in a criminal activity or not. So how much sympathy do we extend people who choose these activities, even if they have economic circumstances that kind of pressure them into making those decisions? It's still, it's still a choice. Or is it? <laughs> and and if you're if you're anti minimum sentencing, it's easy to use examples like like the one I'm bringing up with you know just possession, sale, marijuana, relatively innocent, legal now in most places. But there's also people who make choices to put others in some pretty serious danger, right? Whether it's you know armed assault, armed robbery, grand theft auto, things of this nature that. Maybe they have a reason for wanting the money, but that doesn't justify the action. And at a certain point, they have to be punished for it. Yeah, it's interesting looking at the idea of deterrence in the context of mandatory minimums, um, because generally my understanding and just in conversations I've had with people who are currently in prison, they say the thought of me going to prison the potential of me going to prison was not in my decision-making calculus at the time when I pulled the trigger or whatever, whatever it is that landed me here. And that, that makes sense to me that if you're in a really high pressure situation, your adrenaline's pumping, you're not looking at where do I want to be in five years? <laughs> like, it's just a, a really tense situation. Um, 
But now looking at this with mandatory minimums on the mind, I'm like, mandatory minimums mostly deter people from going to trial. Mm. But not not from committing crime. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if you if you think you're gonna get caught, you're not gonna commit it anyway. And if you don't think you're gonna get caught, doesn't really matter what the punishment is. You're not gonna have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's how people view the law who aren't actually like subject to the law. They probably think that people are making this calculation that okay, I want to do a crime. I know that there's a risk <laughs> that I'll be caught and I know there's a risk I'll go to jail, but I'm accepting those terms just like people walk into a casino and accept that they're probably going to lose their money, but there's a chance they won't. I think that's how people who are not going to ever be engaging the legal system on this level must assume other people understand when they make a decision like selling drugs or whatever is, 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 is the case. So why can't people like figure out that that is not actually how people are viewing their relationship to the law and the legal system when they're undertaking criminal behavior. What, why can't we get in, get into other people's minds that that's not how everybody's thought process works. Or we get rid of the prison system altogether. Like the rest of the countries in the world that don't have the crime that we have, because like Katrina said earlier, (laughs) assigning a random amount of time to a crime and hoping that it fixes things isn't working. Are you ready for me to go into another leftist rant? Cause I'm ready anytime. (laughs) And I, I think that these these difficult questions might lead us to another difficult question, which is, sure, there's some debate about whether or not this type of policy, mandatory minimum sentencing, is effective, but let's assume for a second that it is. Let's assume that m- increasing punishments and establishing mandatory minimum sentences contributes to declining crime rates and prevents crimes from being committed how concerned are we with the methodology we go about to accomplishing that? Like what percentage of crime reduction is worth what increase in punishment? Like how many years we're taking away from people when we, when we throw them in jail? Yeah, this is an interesting question because I think a lot of our conception of how the justice system should work is that There are people who do a bad thing and they get punished, but there's also reasonable limits to how much we punish them. And we try to balance the safety of society with the interests of the actual people who are involved in that. And we still view them as being people, Um, at least in theory. I know a lot of people don't still consider them to be people, but that's because people suck. Um, So there are so many things that we could do to prevent crime that we have all decided are not legitimate measures because they violate the rights of people. Like there are certain constitutional protections so that people are not aggressively interrogated and like abused by the police when they're being interrogated. Um, There's uh, sentencing limits because you don't throw somebody in into prison for life for stealing a pack of gum. And also like there's interrogation of certain other like cruel and unusual tactics. Like there are certain states that no longer have a death penalty and things like that. So at what point do we say this is an acceptable measure to prevent crime? And does it go too far into violating the rights of the people who have committed the crime? Or is it like just far enough? And Mm. does, does mandatory minimums 
does that rise to the level of like cruelty or is it still within our parameters of acceptable treatment towards people who have done something effectively to violate the social contract, but done something to effectively violate the social contract so we can do it back to them? I also think to this point, we've been speaking about incarceration as primarily loss of time or isolation from society. I think we haven't really spoken about how it affects people's families when their father or mother or the primary breadwinner in their in their family unit is taken to prison. I just think even if we say this reduces crime and we're okay with inflicting this punishment on this person for whatever it is that they did, we're leaving out a key stakeholder being the communities that are decimated by mass incarceration and the individuals, particularly the children who are left without role models or just adults in their life to, to guide them and, and support them and do all the things that kids need adults to do. Mm. And this is, you know, we hear the terms all the time, cycle of poverty, you know, and I think that it's, it's pretty obvious that related to that crime is cyclical. So yeah, maybe it just requires our public to have a, a little bit more nuance of an understanding of, of how things work rather than this tough on crime. Well, if we just keep adding years to the sentences, things will get better. And I guess it's this not, and it's not just this attitude of if we punish them more, they'll commit less crime, but also a kind of an attitude, you know, we mentioned earlier about retribution. If, if I'm the victim of a crime, I want the person who wronged me to be punished for it. And like we said, I, I do think that this is a tenant in our criminal justice system. This is, I don't think anybody would argue that this is probably the least justified principle of our criminal justice system, but it is there and there is some justification to it. It's probably the most emotional part of our justice system because it feeds into a sense of like righteousness, the eye for an eye, the eye was hurt. So you must also be hurt because you're the one who hurt me. And I think that that is going to be something that's going to take us as a society a long time to weed out of our judicial system if we think that it's not supposed to be there. So an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth leaves the whole world blind and toothless. And I think, you know, maybe you can see that person in front of you that that committed a crime against you and you want to get your revenge on that person, but you don't see what what you're bringing up, Katrina, which is the whole family and community and everything that that is invisible to you that might be reliant on that person. And then in the long run, as you're getting your retribution, I guess the butterfly effect or the, or the shock waves of you pushing for that first individual to be punished as harshly as possible comes back to harm somebody else, you know, as that cycle of poverty or as that cycle of, of crime continues and and plays out. I think the desire for retribution is totally natural and is something that we should rightly try to explore within our justice system. Again, I don't know that taking the whatever harm was done and turning it into the currency of now there's this amount of time that 
you are going to be removed from society and your family is going to suffer without you is like always the right way to provide retribution. You know, retribution might feel good, but that that want for vengeance comes back around and, and could harm you or the community around you later because you're so worried about punishing this person, which I think leads us into the the last tenet of the criminal justice system and the most commonly referred to one, which would be rehabilitation. But I think what's challenging here when it comes to mandatory minimum sentences, especially with something like the three strikes law, is the sentiment would be if you've committed a a felony, um, a serious or a violent crime once, went to jail for it, that didn't do anything. You've committed it a second time. And then under most three strikes laws, that second punishment is going to be increased in severity. And that still didn't deter you. And then you committed a third time At what point do we stop trying to rehabilitate? I find this extremely tricky because rehabilitation is talked about, but not uniformly practiced or embraced or offered to individuals who are in prison. Having programming that would deal with things like trauma awareness and resilience or you know, AA or anger management or just higher education classes or debate teams, they're they're available to a very, very small percentage of the people who are actually held in prisons because the idea that prisons can be rehabilitative is not something that has been totally widely embraced, even if it's talked about on the outside. So when someone has committed three separate felonies, I would be more curious about whether or not the second and third were more a result of how that person was impacted by the prison system and the pain that it caused them when they were in there the first or the first and the second times. I think that's important to discuss too, because the resulting effect of having a felony conviction means that once you are back out, There are so many things that you can't access that other people who are out of prison normally could. You can't vote. Um, You, in certain states, I'm not sure if it's everywhere, but in certain states, you have to check that you're a felon on job applications, which limits your employment prospects. So your ability to fully re-engage with society after a felony conviction is so limited that it's completely understandable why a subsequent felony crime might be a reasonable thing to choose to do when all other options are limited in that way. Maybe the need for three strikes laws is there as a response to failures of the system rather than failures of these individuals to look to rehabilitate. The three strikes law is the justice system sucks. So we're going to punish the people instead of the justice system. If you're, if that's what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly an argument to be made for that. So I I guess, you know, this is, I feel like this is how most of our episodes are going. We have all these questions and probably our listeners are like, oh, cool. Here's the questions at the start of the episode. I can't wait to hear the answers. And at the end of the episode, all of our answers are, I don't know. So (laughs) does, um, does judicial, is judicial flexibility a good thing or a bad thing, or at least better or worse than legislative control? Um, Is giving more power to prosecutors good or bad? 
Does the way that this interacts with specific crimes, drug crimes, for example, positive or negative? And then the second half of our conversation, you know, how do mandatory minimum sentences interplay with the purposes and the principles of the criminal justice system, deterrence, retribution, rehabilitation? I don't know. <laughs> that's the, that's the takeaway, I suppose. Katrina, do you have any do you have any thoughts here at the end of you know kind of leaning one way or the other? Yeah, yeah. I think mandatory minimums are total bullshit. <laughs> we have an answer. <laughs> yes. Um, on the question of you know power, the the power dynamics between judges and the legislature, and who should we give more more to? I totally understand the desire to have the legislature in more control, especially given that we are a a representative democracy, people pay so much more attention to legislative elections um, and and laws that are being passed than individual judges and their multi-hundred page decisions that literally no one reads. And well, lawyers probably read, but I don't live that life. We're talking about people, we're talking about people though. (laughs) Boom. The um, yeah, the desire to have the legislature more in control, I think, is a good and democratic impulse. My thought based off of my experience and our conversation here would be that I I think there are are more effective ways for the legislature to have some say in what the judges are are doing. Hmm. Kelly, on the whole, I'm kind of like. on on team prison abolition. And I think that that's a whole separate discussion as well. But I think that the real problems of mandatory minimums is that um, in addition to everything we've already talked about, they don't do anything to address actual causes of crime. They don't do anything to address the systemic issues that drive people into making decisions that ultimately leave them in the hands of the justice system. And um, I think that the primary motivation to keep them is a mix of political and emotional that don't make sense when it comes to the actual facts of how these laws are applied and what it actually does with our crime rates and overall ability of a functional judicial system to protect society. It doesn't achieve any of its aims. It just feels really good to some people who feel really bad about certain people. And it also wins elections when people say that they're law and order candidates. So all of those things put together, I think that it's a really fundamentally flawed system. And I would hope that we eventually do away with it when um, all the boomers die. See, I, I, um, I have a hard time here because I'm trying to you know, obviously we talked about all the issues with our criminal justice system and the implementation of mandatory minimum sentencing there. I'm I'm also trying to imagine in a world where the criminal justice system isn't just inherently flawed. So if we were to move this over to, you know, maybe some of the systems they have in Europe and then have mandatory minimum sentences, could it be a useful part of a cohesive criminal justice system? And in that case, I, I do think that there's some benefits here, like the idea of standardization that like any particular crime deserves a particular punishment and it doesn't matter who you are that committed that committed it. I think that seems fair to me. Like that that part of it appeals to me. Um, at the same time, 
even if we treat every individual fairly, we can't necessarily treat the circumstances that they commit that crime in. Those, those things can never be equated evenly, which then by that same logic means that it would be impossible to standardize the punishment. So I think that were the overall criminal justice system equitable and kind of free from some of the other issues that we talked about, I could definitely see a case for for implementing a policy like this. But, you know, since predominantly where this happens and what we've talked about is the criminal justice system in the United States, I think that it just compounds with some of the other problems that exist and makes it almost impossible for it to achieve what it's meant to achieve, whether it's the the psyche of the voting pub population that's ruining it, or it's inherent biases of judges that's ruining it, or abuse by prosecutors that's ruining it, or the fact that when you're in prison, you're not actually being rehabilitated that's ruining it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I think that you know when it interacts with all of those various components of the criminal justice system as a whole, it's kind of hard to defend it. And you know, I suppose that's why we've been seeing the severity of three strikes laws lessening for the most part, mandatory minimum sentences like in California just last month being eliminated for more and more crimes. And so, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe society in general is coming to the same conclusion that we are. Hallelujah. Everybody will see things my way eventually. <laughs> <laughs> we will have a borderless, prisonless. We should start adding on to the end of every episode all of the all of the radical things that I believe. Yeah, the yeah. newest interpretation of Kelly's world. So now we have yeah. a world with I, no borders will, and no, no borders, no, no countries. Everybody's got universal citizenship everywhere. There's no mm-hmm. prison. And we're all humans, no zombies. <laughs> Why not zombies? Well, you there's a whole debate episode. you gotta listen to. Okay, <laughs> you have okay. to listen to our I gotta go back. And I think I won that one. <laughs> mm, I was very non-committal as usual. Um <laughs> at the end of this, I I I want to thank you again, Katrina, for stopping by and sharing some of your thoughts. And also for for people who aren't aware of it, which I think is probably most people, which should not be the case. I would encourage you to look up some of the work that she's doing and also just the program of Parole Illinois. And I, I do want to definitely give you a chance here at the end too, Katrina. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about or or inform people of before we before we leave? Sure. We've been talking a lot about sentencing and um, kind of the front end of the criminal justice system, but my work has been a lot at the back end and looking at opportunities for release. And I think the the main thing that I've learned in interacting with so many people who have spent decades in prison is that even in the worst circumstances, it's possible for a person to totally transform their lives. And we should never, never lock someone up and totally throw away the key. We should always check back in on people. Well said. Katrina, thank you so much for joining us. It's it's absolutely a privilege to get to speak to somebody who's got so much firsthand knowledge of how things actually operate um, when we just kind of talk about them in theory all the time. So if anybody out there has any questions or would like to see Katrina come back at some point to talk more about this issue, um, we can be reached at IndubitablyPod on Twitter and Facebook. And we certainly invite everybody's questions, comments, and accusations. (laughs) Right. And we're not able to thank him directly, but we wanted to at least express our gratitude for Katrina's friend Howard for sharing his thoughts with us. And to finish up this episode, we'll be leaving you with another clip from their conversation. As always, thank you everyone for listening. We really do appreciate it. Okay, I just started recording.
right, so the thing that I was thinking about with military military is how they take away an individual um, look at the oppressor. But it, it takes it takes the individual out of it. Right? It places it places more attention on the actual class of the offender. Crime and harm are highly individualized, right? And so there are certain factors, social economic factors, family factors. There are a lot of things that go into a person committing crime that I believe need to be um, fleshed out in some significant way when something as serious as putting a person in prison is on is on the line. Instead, however, our system just treats the individual as like a footnote in the in the, in the criminal justice process and focus more attention on what the charge said and what the conviction bears about. So I get charged with a violent crime such as murder, then my mandatory minimum is twenty years. I don't really care what you did, like why you did it. If you get found guilty, 20 years. Minimum. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's, you don't even care about me. Like, you don't you don't care about the individual that's behind us, man. Don't just lock them up and go away. You know what I mean? And so, I think that that's a harm military minimum. I think, I think our system should be one that tries to take into consideration the individual circumstances that goes behind every offense. You know what I mean? And it kind of goes back to what I was saying a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, uh, our system kind of like this counts the story of the offender in the whole criminal justice process. When at the exact same time they're, they're claiming to be interested in public safety, right? There's only one way that you can ever really promote public safety is in if all the story is told, you got to hear the perspective of the offender as well as the perspective of the victim's harm. You know what I mean? In order to get a real clear picture, a real accurate picture of what crime, what crime and harm is like. And, and to have yeah. an honest understanding of how to create a safe environment. Yeah. You cannot create a, a safe environment with just one side of the sword. 